that it's always kind of pulling us ever forward to the place where we really should live. Into a city whose builder and maker is God, a city that's not made with hands, that is eternal in the heavens. So again, I'd ask you, what kind of people ought we to be? At what level of excellence should we live while we wait? Now, since if we call ourselves Christ followers, if we are headed for eternal glory, since we are going to be citizens of God's eternal kingdom, since we are going to be delivered uh, from the day of the Lord to enter into the eternal kingdom of God, how do we live expectantly? Let me give you a few things today. Here's number one. How we ought to live while waiting. And we're going to go back to the text. Here's number one. We are to, while we wait, we are to live with devotion. Verse 11 says, in holy conduct and godliness. That's how we wait, in holy conduct and godliness. Now, Paul says there is an eternal perspective. It'll change the way that we behave. And it, it changes the way we behave in a couple of different ways. He said, we're going to learn to live in godliness, and we're going to learn to live in holiness, holy conduct, godliness and purity, if you will. One of my uh, favorite Bible teachers is John MacArthur. I want, you, I want to read to you what he's said about this, about holiness and godliness. He says, holy conduct refers to action. Godliness refers to attitude. Holy conduct refers to the way I live my life. Godliness refers to the spirit of reverence within me by which I live my life. Holy conduct refers to that which rules my behavior, and godliness refers to that which rules my heart. And so here Peter is saying, what kind of person ought you to be in heart and behavior, in motive and in action, in attitude, in duty? So while we're waiting, we are living with devotion, practicing a holy conduct and godliness. Now, you see a couple of results of this. Uh, we're going to live in purity. Now, John wrote in 1 John 3, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We've all got this hope of heaven. And so we want to be like where we're going. A couple of years ago, there was a, a pretty popular book written, which was called Heaven, uh, written by Randy Alcorn. I know it was read by a lot of people, a lot of Bible studies. And um, I want to read you just a little bit what he says about heaven. He said, if my wedding date is on the calendar and I'm thinking of the person I'm about to marry, I shouldn't be the target for seduction. Likewise, when I've meditated on heaven, sin is not terribly appealing. It's when my mind drifts from heaven that sin seems to be attractive. Thinking of heaven leads in inevitably to pursuing holiness. Our high tolerance for sin testifies of our failure to prepare for heaven. Heaven should affect our activities and ambitions, our recreation and friendships, and the way we spend our money and time. If I believe that I will spend eternity in a world of unending beauty and adventure, will I be content to spend all evening staring at game shows, sitcoms, and ball games? Even if I keep my eyes off of impurities, how much time will I want to invest in what just simply does not matter? He's saying how you live down here as you live with devotion changes how you live in terms of godliness. 
or in purity. He also says godliness, and the Greek word here literally means to worship well. Godliness is to worship well. It describes a person whose life is literally devoted to pleasing God, lived out even as an act of worship, and not just on Sunday morning. Sadly, you know, we, if I asked you, when do you worship, you'd probably say, Sunday's at 10. Now, worship is something you do all the time. I mean, if we really believe what Peter has written, it's going to be reflected in the way in which we live, and the way we live gets down to a whole bunch of personal choices. You know, what I do with my time, what I do with my money. This last week, teaching down at uh, Louisiana State Prison, and we were talking about the spiritual life, and, and one, of the, one of the inmates said, Doc, I know we're not supposed to judge other people. He said, but how, how could you tell if one of your members had their priorities straight? I said, oh, that's kind of a tricky question. But, you know, I, I said, I guess sometimes I, I would probably say, show me what you do with your time and show me what you do with your money, and I can probably show you what's most important in your life. Now, I realize, you know, and when you live in this direction here, godliness and purity, you realize that your time is not your own. You realize that money is not your own. That someday, when the second coming comes, you're going to be held accountable for everything that God has given you. I mean, even Jesus in Matthew 6, 21, what does he say? Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is going to be. I mean, for example, if you want a heart for Cooper Tires, let's say, uh, then you buy stock in Cooper Tires. If you want your heart for your house or your boat or your car, then you're going to invest money in your house or boat or car. If you want a heart for God, where are you going to invest your treasures? Chances are you're going to involve them in missions or the somewhere that is going to help proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, probably you've heard this before. I think it was Chuck Swindoll I first heard say this. He said, uh, you can't take it with you. In fact, when was the last time you ever saw a U-Haul trailer behind the hearse? I mean, it's not going to happen. But he went on to say, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on, and, uh, send it on ahead by investing in the kingdom of God. Now, we're not only to live with devotion, but here's the second thing. In second, we're expected to live with expectancy. I want you to look at this verse because... Uh, three times Peter says something. He said, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of, the, of God. Like I, I could just stop right there and say, when was the last time you ever thought about and hoped that God would come back? When was the last time you thought about that? But it says, looking for and hastening the day because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. Now, three times in three verses, Paul or Peter uses the phrase looking for. Now, the verb translated looking for or looking forward carries with it the idea of expectancy, that you're uh, weighing and you're alert, you're, you're, you're ready. If I'm a baseball player, for example, 
and I'm up to bat, and I know this guy has got a a um, a really great curveball. I am going to be up at plate, and I am going to be looking for it. I'm waiting expectantly to see that curveball coming in. Looking for the coming of God, looking for new heavens and earth, looking forward to these things. And looking is in the present tense. That's the Greek word, it's in the present tense. It means that it's our habit, it's our lifestyle, that we are constantly on the lookout for the second coming of Christ. And as you continually live with an eternal perspective, that's what happens. You're living with expectancy. The idea is we're waiting for it, no doubt about it. Uh, we, we, are, we are looking forward to it. We anticipate it. We expect it. And it describes an attitude we should have as we live out a life of expectation. Now, the coming of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of heaven provide, I think, some of the strongest motivation for living the Christian life that you will ever find. See, what you believe about the future will determine how you live today. The future is like an anchor that has been cast way out there and then gradually pulls you toward that future. One Bible commentator wrote this, Today we see a lot of careless, slipshod living, but also a great emphasis on prophecy. I hear people say, Oh, I'm waiting for the Lord to come. Brother, my question is not whether you are looking for the Lord to come, but how are you living while you're waiting? How you live down here determines whether or not you're really looking for the Lord to come. So we are living with expectancy, but there's a third thing as we wait. We are to live with diligence. Verse 14, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. Now, what one is looking for should have a direct relationship to what one is living for. In the book of Hebrews, and we went through the book of Hebrews not long ago uh, here in church, in Hebrews 6 it uses the noun form to urge people forward in their Christian walk. I always think about, you know, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. I still remember being in a church one time where we sang that sitting down. You know, I really kind of felt we should have been walking all over the church while we sang that. That's like, you know, lift high the cross. My wife said, I don't know how you can sing lift high the cross unless you've got something in your hand you're lifting. Or it's like stand up for stand up for Jesus while we're sitting there. It calls for some action. Uh, what I'm looking for, I'm living in such a way that I can get there. In Hebrews 6 it says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. See, the second half of that little verse up there uh, refers to two things. We are to be without spot. We are to be spotless. This refers to our character, which we really are on the inside. In adult Bible class this morning, we talked about form and content. You know, the, we talked about the People magazine that has the 50 most beautiful people in the world. They look great on the outside, but what's on the outside is not necessarily what's on the inside. 
You know, people talk about integrity, and integrity, they say, is uh, who you are when no one's looking. Are you the same person when somebody's got their eye on you as when not? Of course, the question is, do you realize that God's eye is on you all the time? We are to be blameless. This refers to our reputation and how we relate to others, that people know you truly are who you claim to be. Now, both of those terms in, in God's Word, you talk about character and reputation, they talk about what we are in reality and what people think we are. Peter said that the end result of living this way while we wait will be that we will be found by him in peace. He is saying that as we wait for the second coming, whenever that is, we ought to be in total peace. We should be living without fear. I remember a couple of years ago in the t-shirts, you saw a lot of kids wear these t-shirts and hats that said, no fear. I scared a couple of them one day. That t-shirt and that hat didn't do them any good at all. But as Christians, we ought to live with no fear. I mean, think about it this way. If the Lord would tell you that he was going to take you home in the next 24 hours, either through your, your, his coming or through your death, can you say, no fear? I'm completely at ease because I know exactly where I'm headed. Are you ready? As you waited, have you prepared yourself? I want you to imagine for a moment that somebody invites you and takes you to a party. You get to this party and you see a few friends there. You enjoy uh, some good conversations, a little laughter. They've actually got some decent appetizers. Uh, the party's all right, uh, but you keep hoping that the party will somehow get a little bit better. And so you're thinking, well, I'm going to give it another hour, and maybe this party will get even better. But suddenly your friend grabs you by the arm and says, I need to take you home. But you're kind of disappointed because nobody really likes to leave a party early. But you leave, and your friend drops you off at your house. And as you approach the door... You're kind of feeling sorry for yourself, and you're feeling a little bit alone. And as you open the door and you reach inside for the light switch, you got this weird feeling that someone's in your house. Your heart is a little bit in your throat, but you reach around and you flip on that light switch, and you hear, Surprise! <laughs> that scared a few of you, didn't it? Your house is full of smiling people, familiar faces. Guess what? It's a party, and it's a party for you. I mean, you smell all your favorites. Ah, sausage and mushroom pizza. Ah, fresh pecan pie right out of the oven. The tables are full. It's an absolute feast. You look around, and you recognize the guests. And some of them are people you haven't seen for ages. Then, one by one, the people you most enjoyed at the other party actually start showing up at your house. And they've all got big smiles on their face, too. And this turns out to be a 
real party. This is the best party you've ever been. You realize that if you'd stayed longer at that other party, you wouldn't be at the real party. You'd be away from it. Now, Christians faced with a terminal illness or with imminent death often feel like they're leaving the party before it's over. They have to go home early. And they're disappointed, thinking of all that they've missed when they leave. But the truth is, guess what? When you leave this party, the real party is underway at home, in heaven, precisely where they were going in the first place. They're not the ones who missed the party. Those of us who get left behind when the Lord takes someone home are the ones who are left at the old party. See, the, the ultimate question is, I think Randy Elkhorn asked this in his book, where will you be one minute after you die? Where will you be one minute after you die? Jesus said there are two roads in life. I think, Ted, you read this this morning from Matthew 7. Either through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through that gate. How narrow is the gate and how difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. See, the broad road down here leads to judgment. It leads to destruction. It leads to hell. On that road, people seem to be having a wonderful time. Back when I was a high school teacher, I remember supervising dances. I still remember this. I can't, even, I can't even believe they did this song at a Lutheran high school, but I remember the kids dancing to a song by ACDC called Highway to Hell. And I remember being up in the balcony looking over, watching the dance, and I realized these kids are really enjoying this song that says we're on a highway to hell. And if you listen to the words... It says it's going, you're going to a place where all your friends are. And I'm thinking, what a sad, sad, pitiful commentary on people and what they really think. They see people seem to be having a great time, but they're on the wrong path. You ever done that going on a trip and you're having a wonderful time driving and suddenly realize you're going the wrong way? And it's by the fact that you had two GPSs, that electric one and the grandma pointing system next to you that says, turn here. You're going the wrong way. I mean, you could be driving and have to go down that road as a party atmosphere. But suddenly when you realize that you're going the wrong way and where you're going is not going to a place where you enjoy, it's emptiness. There's a loneliness. There's a certain insecurity. The narrow road, on the other hand, leads to heaven. Traveling that road to heaven is difficult. The reason it's difficult is because it goes against the grain of society. It goes against the tide of all the worldly pleasures. It goes against the sins of this world. On this road, though, i got to tell you, there's a lot of fun and there's a lot of laughter on the road to heaven. But along with that is the sense of destiny. There is a distinction of hope. There is an assurance of something better to follow this earthly existence. I mean, I've said this any number of times. 
Folks, if this life is all there is, this stinks. I mean, I like this life. But if, if this is all there is, it's not that big a deal. But see, I can enjoy this life because I know i got a better party to go to. It's going to be a whole lot better. The question is, which road are you on? Which one are you on? What will be your final destination? Where will you be one minute after you die? That's why we talk about Jesus. That's why we talk about the gospel. That's why we help you recall Bible passages like John 3.16, how God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but what? Will be on that narrow path to heaven. Or Ephesians 2.8-9, For it is by grace you've been saved, through faith, a gift of God on that path, on the road to heaven. But are we going to have to wait a few years? Maybe. Maybe not. I mean, some of us may not be here next week, next month, next year. There's no promise of how long we'll be here. The Winans sang a song which was called Tomorrow. And in that song it said, Tomorrow, tomorrow, who promised you tomorrow? Your tomorrow could very well be today. The Bible says today could be the first day of the rest of your life. While we wait, and who knows how long it would be, how do we do it? With a cell phone in one hand, an iPad under one arm, a Kindle in the other hand. Oh, that's part of enjoying life. But I'm going to tell you, while you wait, live devotionally. Live expectantly and live diligently and learn to live and place your faith and your future in the hands of Jesus. Looking for the new heavens and looking for the new earth in which righteousness dwells. May God be with us all on this journey. Amen. Let's stand and let's join together.